Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Berkey The Women in the Woods Chapter 4 The Hesiod people have never stopped. Their urge is to move, and by moving, to obliterate themselves. It's almost as though they are people with no heart, no sentimentality at all. They're attached to nothing. Perhaps superficially to each other and to life. But they are peculiar in that they have little in a way of history, either verbal or written. They will simply disappear as an idea one day, just pop and be gone. And it's unlikely that they or anyone else will care. That's a very liberating kind of philosophy, or lack of one. They have only been traced thanks to the record-keeping of the people in whose lands they arrived. The Hesiods who arrived in the parish of St. James in Louth in the early summer of 1761, had crossed Europe, probably as part of a much larger party. Sightings of the strange eastern folk, rumoured to hail all the way from the Pavlodar region of Kazakhstan, were made that year in Belgium and even Denmark. They seemed to have an urge to head west, because they didn't stop at the edge of mainland Europe, but found their way onto one or maybe several boats and congregated on the Lincolnshire coast somewhere east of Louth. No one remarked on their arrival, perhaps because it was done under the cover of night. No one saw them make their way inland, or perhaps no one thought to record the sighting. No one bothered to inquire who they were or what they wanted. The Pavlodar Hesiods were no respecters of private property, although, to be fair to them, they made no bones about being escorted off the property if they were found out. All they seemed to require was wood. They had a liking for it. More than that, a reliance on it. They were excellent woodworkers, and were puzzled by the suggestion that trees were not freely available for anyone's use. But the most astonishing thing about the Hesiods was their predisposition for female authority. No one has ever recorded a dominant male, or even a noticeable one among their number. The women's appearance was arresting. Dark, thick, plaited hair worn to their waist, and sometimes a little intimidating. Who knows why they seemed to produce more girl children? Was it just willpower? Were the boys sent off to fend for themselves, rejected, extraneous? Or is it all part of the mythologising process that kicks in when strangers appear? A few men usually hung around the group, though not even for the sake of reproduction. The production of children, particularly girl children, was the highest achievement of Hesiod women. They started young, 
and they produced many by a variety of fathers, with no desire for constancy from those men. It's almost as though any man would do. Little Hesiod girls were therefore rather more ahead of the game than their Western sisters, having seen in their mothers the profound satisfaction that comes of producing multiple children. Hesiod women did not practice the art of seduction. They had no need. They simply selected. Once you've been selected by a Hesiod woman, you are unlikely to turn her down. But this selective approach to parenthood was rather strange to their host nations, and they ran up against moral authority over and over again. Their ways aroused outrage, and so they learnt to act quickly, to integrate as fast as they could if they and their progeny were to survive. That strategy of rapid assimilation was probably already simmering in the mind of the Hesiod leader on that summer afternoon in rural Lincolnshire, as she and her tribeswomen were herded away from their copse and over the field to the lane beyond. She hadn't much time, and she had no allies, except perhaps the tall man with the long brown hair who had come down to their new settlement and indicated rather urgently that they should leave. He was the one who calmed the other men who came straight after him and were more aggressive. Yes, he would do. But she didn't know, of course, that she was soon to enjoy the protection of another ally, a powerful woman who would control the fate of this tiny number of Hesiods of England, for no other reason that they were predominantly women. Women were the chosen ones, because when Christ visited English shores, he had landed on the east coast and seen the labouring and benighted women and had promised them that their time would come, that he would send them a leader in and around 1,700 years' time and that she would wander through the land with them, urging them to cease their lamenting and join their radiant journey to salvation. The Church of the Radiant Wanderers was about to take up the cause of the wandering women of Pavlodar and etch both their tiny marks on the history of this farmland by the sea. Hilary, good evening. I've just emerged from a two-hour bout of online solitaire. I despise myself. I doubt you're the type to fritter away your valuable time with such obscenities. And yet I wonder about your foibles. Do you have any? You must have. You've been strangely quiet on the subject. I haven't got any time for foibles. Too busy writing your bloody book. Ha! <laughs> Fair enough. I wonder if we might ever be friends, you and I. Though neither of us has offered to communicate by phone or in the flesh. I can't answer for your reasons, but for me... Well, when I'm better, perhaps. I put everything social off until when I'm better. Fortunately, I have a husband who is happy to entertain himself. So enamoured is he of me. Or at least of some muddled view of me. Ah! I've thought of a foible. 
your lack of husband to bring up your daughter. That's less than perfect, isn't it? Less than ideal for some, but not for me. Things work well this way. Might you still have children? Good God, no. I mean, the system's still working, in theory, but it must be awfully rusty. And it's too late. I couldn't do it now. It's another thing that went under the when I'm better heading. Listen, I'm slightly agitated about two things. I've given up on the synopsis. Firstly, we don't seem to have many cliffhanger endings, do we? I'm waiting any minute for Fiona to get back to me, saying, Yes, all very interesting, darling, but why should I turn another page? There need to be some unanswered questions, some shocking revelations. The other thing was that when I said that I was in trouble with my publisher for being behind, I meant I still owed them two books, not just this one. It's all very well our producing a novel piecemeal, but we have to start thinking about the next one, too. We have to give them an outline, and I am utterly smitten with the most sententious horde. You see, I'm thinking of making it ever so slightly autobiographical. What do you think? Are you saying I'm writing that one too? Oh, well, you're going to have to tell me a lot more about yourself then. Can we continue this tomorrow? I want to go to bed. Well, I envisaged writing that one myself, but you're the one with all the information. I see it as a collaboration. You're going to have to supply me with all the details of the Horde's life, and I'll supply the details of mine. If you already have some plot ideas, then all well and good. To be honest, a few plot lines have been zinging through my head. I thought the heart of the story should be friendship, the relationship between the girls. I'm seeing a kind of threat to the group, maybe treachery, maybe men. It should be a buddy movie kind of thing, which reminds me... You sent me a veiled warning ages ago when you said that you had a habit of finding fault with people. I guessed you were saying that no one is safe with you. I thought you were telling me to get lost, but I got that wrong. What did you mean? Actually, no need to answer. I'm very tired and I have to get up early to make Lena a packed lunch for a school trip tomorrow. Night-night. Y-M-A-R, as I now think of myself. Good night, Hilary. You'll be in bed now, dreaming of tuna sandwiches and cheese and onion crisps. Perhaps you'll be thinking of Nathan Gentle, too. God knows I have been. I do hope he gets his end away. I can see him dying, though. There's something tragic about him, but not before begetting some dark-eyed daughter by our Hesiod Enchantress. I'm still a little in the dark about Dominic, though. They seem so young, our leading characters. I've never had them as children. I do hope nothing unseemly is going to happen. Edward, too, is in bed and probably asleep. Do you know, I think he believes I stay up late every night struggling with my art. What would he think if he knew that his successful author of a wife was actually playing solitaire into the early hours, into a state of self-loathing? I throw those expressions around rather readily, don't I? The bits about hating myself. I wonder if I really do. You ask me how I've treated my friends, and I would say, on the whole, well. I've never lied to them, never flattered, never misled. If I confer my friendship on someone, then she can feel confident that it's genuine. If I remove it, or never offer it in the first place, then she'll know there is something wrong with her. If only most people conducted themselves as honestly. 
Have I been cruel in the past? Perhaps. Some would say I continue to be so by having such a convenient marriage. But it works. Edward loves me, but more than that, he loves being married to a writer. I love being married. That's all the friendship I need. There is, in the mind, a barrier to total love, I think. I'm talking about complete empathy with another human being. There's compatibility and there's enhanced friendship, but two people cannot live as one, can't reside in each other's minds, let alone hearts. That's a myth. I may write romantic fiction, but I know it's a fantasy. Representing idealised love is an age-old occupation. Every writer has done it in some shape or form. Every writer knows under her skin that it's bollocks. Anyway, why should we want to be so thoroughly known, so utterly understood by another person? I have no doubt that my marriage will last this time, and that's because Edward and I have absolutely no idea what each other is about. We can age while being amused and bemused by each other's antics. Will I be writing into old age, I wonder? I have to. I realise that. Just to make it seem real. But God knows. I really don't want to. Help me. If you understand me, then please help me. Hillary was played by Rebecca Charles, Monica by Georgina Sutton. The male narrator was Mark Lingwood. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio.